I literally uh, just tracked down a bunch of hippies, described my wife, gave her her name, <laughs> and, and exactly eventually, in about, about literally, in about an hour and 20 minutes, I was able to, like, track her down and find her and be like, show up at her house and just did it, right? Pre-technology. Right, right. Well, know? that's what I'm envisioning. That's what you had to do. You had to get down and dirty and right. make things happen. Have a pen you know? and a piece of paper. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. And a stamp. Oh, my God. <laughs> I still have stamps. Nice. Welcome to Lunch with Shelly, the podcast featuring conversations with colleagues, friends, family, business leaders. At lunch, here's Shelly. Hello and welcome to Lunch with Shelly. We have an awesome guest today, as always. He is my good friend, Matt Rosenheim, and he is the president of the very fabulous Tiny Jewel Box, which, to those listeners who might not know, is a real Washington institution. I like to think of Tiny Jewel Box, or TJB, as Washington's Tiffany's or Cartier, but better in many ways because it's truly unique to this city. And if you've ever been lucky enough to shop there or get a present from there, you know that a Tiny Jewel Box box is just as or more impeccably wrapped as one from Tiffany's or Cartier, and dollars to donuts, what's inside will be way more unique. I first went to the Tiny Jewel Box when I was in my early 20s, so a while ago, and I even knew Matt's grandmother who used to run the place, and then I continued to shop there while his father and mother ran everything, and then I continued as a customer as they expanded their business and their building, and now I am a shopper under Matt's reign. Therefore, as you're surmising, the Tiny Jewel Box is and always has been a family-run business, which is another very special and unique aspect of the shop. Mm -hmm. The Rosenheims are a wonderful family, and they have the nicest people working there, too. Many of the staff have been there forever as well, so when you walk inside, you get a feeling of warmth in addition to a feast for your eyes, since everything is so bright and shiny. (laughs) Clearly over the years, Matt and I have become pals, and it is my sincere pleasure to have a great and prominent Washingtonian, as well as a very interesting person with great music taste, as today's guest. Welcome to Lunch with Shelly, Matt, and let's have lunch. Shelly, thank you so much. It's uh, an amazing introduction, and I'm excited to uh, be here and to be able to have lunch with you. Well, it is a well-deserved introduction because we've known each other for a really long time, and I love the Tiny Jewel Box. So let's start by talking about the Tiny Jewel Box. So I have this memory of going there in a much, much smaller location when your grandmother was there. So how did it begin? So my grandmother, Roz, and my grandfather, Monty, founded the store in 1930. Oh, my gosh. original address was 1327 and a half G Street. (laughs) Right. And if you're wondering about the half, it was related to the fact that their actual location was a breezeway between two office buildings. Yes, it was very skinny. Too narrow to be an actual alley. And my grandparents paid $20 a month to the landlord of one building, $20 a month to the other. No, no heat, no running water, keys to the bank building. So the name started uh, very literally. Oh, that's so funny. It is. So, that's uh, so funny. And they were in that store for a long time. Uh, you know, moved on to Connecticut Avenue in 1958. I was going to say, I think that was the first place. No, I feel like not, you know, 17th that, Street. Yeah, that location actually got uh, destroyed for the Farragut North Metro. Oh, my gosh. Um, so they moved up the block to the block that we're currently on. 
um, the 1100 block of Connecticut Avenue. And when I started in business out of college and out of gem school, you know, we had about a 1500 square foot store, five or six employees that, you know, weren't family members. And our specialty was antique and estate jewelry, which made up about 75% of our business. Right. Um, and between then and now, Things have changed a lot. My Things gosh. Have changed a lot. Yeah. Well, so let's talk about the change, though. So, Tiny Jewel Box, you can get amazing jewelry. Um, you can get watches, which I want to talk to you about, and diamonds and everything. But you also had the second and third floor of stuff. We did. I so, love this stuff. When did know, this stuff start? <laughs> in, the, in the mid-90s, my father bought the old headquarters of Elizabeth Arden. Right. Um, it's 1147 right. Connecticut. Yeah, it's a yeah. six-story building. Gutted it all to bare brick and rebuilt a store in really a new, newly imagined image. Like designer jewelry was exploding, and we went to Europe to find amazing gifts and accessories that weren't really being brought to the United States, and that was our niche. Right. Imported European things that weren't really in the market, along with antique jewelry that we had always done, and this kind of new emerging designer jewelry. I think the only designer... Uh, that we had at that time was David Yerman. I was going to say, and you had um, John Hardy, yeah. and you had this gorgeous uh, sterling silver company from London. Uh, Links of London. Links, yeah. So, you know, my dad was David Yerman's first customer. Oh, my uh, gosh. And was John Hardy's second customer oh my in the gosh. United States. So I think... I had no idea. You know, when, you're, when you deal with one-of-a-kind things, right. you develop your own kind of, like, taste and confidence, and I think... My father really never needed market validation to right. make the plunge, Excellent. which is why he has a history of kind of being first to things, uh, because he didn't. He was confident and was willing to take the risk. And fast forward now, I mean, you guys have Penelope Preville or, or whatever yeah, her Penny name Preville, is, Penny Preville, a, a, a big. You were the, you're still the first designers. for a lot of designers. We we are, yeah, and um, you know most of those deals, you know, for designers still come through us. So kind of what we have is our edited version of a great collection of designer jewelry. You are listening to Lunch with Shelly. Our waiter, John, is here. Do you like watches? I do. He sells amazing watches. If you could have any watch in the world, do you know what kind you'd want? Um, I'm a foodie. <laughs> so no, you don't know. All right. Well, let's do our order then. I'm going to have, please, the uh, blackened salmon over the mixed greens. Okay. No blue cheese. Vinaigrette. Please. I'll go with uh, Palm Classic Chicken Palm. All right. But it's always very exciting to know what Claude is getting. Yeah, he's always. <laughs> Caesar would be great. It's something Sanitary. unusual. No, thanks. Okay. The classic burger for me. Cheddar? Blue? Yes. Uh, cheddar. Okay. How do you can, like I, can I add bacon? Can I add bacon? Today? Of course. How do you like yeah. your burger? Uh, medium well. Okay. Wow. The last time we dined, he had a burger, so now you're going to have to contrast and compare. (laughs) I have no doubt. Thank you. So, back to your dad. So, he bought the Elizabeth Arden. You know, but then he also, excuse me, did all the Federalist. Uh, yes, we had a, a corporate gift business. Right. Um, and a big retail gift business, which made the store, I think, a really interesting, you know, compelling place to shop. But, you know, what we discovered over time, that it was really hard to make a profitable business uh, out of those categories. Yeah, you know, I know. In the 2008 recession, it kind of got difficult. And I think, you know, we were willing to pivot and develop other categories. And I really think, like, our willingness to stay flexible in what we're doing was really a key to our success over years. We weren't kind of uh, ingrained uh, in the past too much. And I give my father a lot of credit for that. 
um, that he was always willing to change and evolve. Yeah. He's a very cool guy. His father is one of the nicest people you'll ever meet. He's and he's really mellow too. I mean, for a store owner, he like he's he's mellowed mellow. over the years. Yeah, he's mellowed right. over the years. Yeah. He's not my father. <laughs> mellow might not be the first word I think of. I imagine, but, uh, but with for you, me, Shelley, yes. of course he is. With you, Shelley. <laughs> so, with a big focus on watches, so I asked John, yes. and this is one of the questions I want to ask you. If you could have any watch in the world, what would you be wearing? Or are you wearing it right now? I'm wearing one of my favorites. <gasps> what is, is a it? Nice, uh, Rolex Yacht Master collection. Let me say, carat yellow gold. On oh my goodness! Oyster Flex bracelet, which is kind of goes Wait, casual, goes dressy. Let's take a picture. Goes casual, goes. I love the bracelet. Thanks. It's gorgeous. Thanks. It's a new acquisition. Well, Mazel Tov, did you give it to yourself because you deserve it? You know, like, like, like my, my love language is giving it? gifts right. to others. So, so funny. I, I don't always have the easiest time doing it for myself, so I kind of tend to attach goals to the things I get for myself. Good and then for I'm you. able to enjoy them a little bit more. Right. So, so what uh, was the goal, or what did you well, do? Well, you know, we've been through a major watch expansion over the last two years. In the United States, there's really an explosion of watch growth. Yeah, I want uh, you to talk about on. this. Yeah, it's, it's really probably the biggest mover uh, in our business. So even prior to COVID, the watch market was exploding in this country and really developing more maturity in the market uh, in the U.S. Uh, it's been mature in Europe for a long time, but the business was very hot. And then it just kind of went crazy during COVID. And we were fortunate enough to be able to invest in and expand with our two major brand partners and built uh, in 2021 a new facility for Patek Philippe. Uh, and then in 2022, we went into a new building that we actually owned but had never occupied with a new freestanding Rolex store, which just opened last year. So I've seen that. It's a new building or a new it's, room? It's a new building that used to be the oh, maybe location I of uh, seen it. Blue Mercury on Kennedy Avenue. We took over that fourth Oh, floor. you know what? Mm-hmm. I don't think I've seen it. Oh, my gosh. After lunch, we might have yeah, to walk over there. Yeah, I know. <laughs> so, um, you know, we renovated and built out the whole four-story building into a brand new Rolex facility, which is really the premier Rolex location in this part of the country now. My goodness. And the same for Patek Philippe, which uh, when it comes to high complications in watchmaking is really considered uh, the best of the best in the world, while Rolex is still king when it comes to uh, robust sport watches. Fascinating. So it's been a big um, change for us. Yeah. And, uh, you know, at a very kind of tumultuous and critical and but interesting time to be in hard luxury, uh, which is during COVID kind of exploded. Yeah. Uh, Oddly. In this country. And, and unexpectedly. I would say. <laughs> Do you like watches? No, I love watches. I mean, as a matter of fact, so this is just a little smart watch that I got for free with my phone, but um, so much so that even if my watch's batteries die, I don't, even if I don't change them, I right. still wear them as like accessory pieces. But I'm interested in, in like, what do you think it was about COVID that caused an extra boost or boom in the watch consumer? Sure. Um, I'm happy to answer that. I think, you know, the, the, the boom in watches was extreme, but it wasn't unique in the sense that, you know, hard luxury performed quite well during COVID. And I think what was behind that was... The, the haves f- had a lot. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And, and okay. the truth is, you know, our business is very emotion driven and people were home. They couldn't travel. 
Right. Uh, they couldn't have lavish weddings. They couldn't right. have lavish honeymoons. And a lot of that inured to larger diamond sales. Right. Um, and at the same time, people were very emotional and they wanted to treat themselves and to celebrate their occasion still. And I think, like, you know, things were accessible during COVID. And those were like accessible like ways. (laughs) I I do. (laughs) I do know that about (laughs) Shelly. No, but I I know. But you know what also is interesting? And Matt has been saying this ever since, of course, he um, really spearheaded the watch section. I mean, Matt is bringing his family, you know, into this new ish era and it's really great to see generation over generation because Matt is is very forward thinking but he's been talking about the import of watches as jewelry or I mean of course it's jewelry but like really like part of your outfit for Mm -hmm. years even pre-COVID so talk a little bit about that I mean you think a watch is the most important accessory a man can have well, you know, guys don't have a lot. You know, I right. notice, like, you know, Shelly, like, beautiful bags and right. shoes when I see you. And we can't play in those spaces. So I think, you know, watches uh, right. is a way, yeah. you know, and, and people don't, you know, dress formally in ties and suits very much anymore. Right. Mm-hmm. So watches is a way that guys can kind of have a little bit of personal expression. Right. And I think that's one kind of avenue where people are kind of attracted to watches. But at the same time, I think there's a whole contingent of watch lovers that love the mechanical, yeah. handmade kind of aspects of watches that are kind of like this contrast to our digital world. Yes, so a that's like a very good point. Car guys are also watch guys. And, mm-hmm. you know, what's happened is this whole kind of collecting culture uh, has emerged. And we have a, a, a cadre of watch clients that are really aficionados and right. big, big collectors now. And that's kind of a really growing big segment. So there's these guys that give us lists of watches. Really? You know, 10, 12 watches. For you to find? Any, anytime we can find them there. They want them. Wow. And then we have clients that come every, you know, one, two, three years and want to treat themselves, you know, with a new watch right. uh, or something, you know, to commemorate, you know, a special occasion or accomplishment. They're also lovely because they are investments and there's something that you can pass down. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Claude has a son. I have a son. Right, right. <laughs> I'm yeah. not giving him my watch. <laughs> well, there's like, a, I, yeah. there's a permanence like, yeah. to jewelry and watches in a way, you know? I like, love I love that you said the, the timepiece, though, where it's, that an, it's an anti-digital uh, effort. Yeah. Sort of. yeah. I mean, I think people who love watches love, you know, hand-setting their watches and winding their I watches. I have to wind my watch today. Yeah. yeah. Some people think it's a burden, and you know, but if you get into it and you love it, yeah. it kind of makes you a little more connected to it, in a way. Mm-hmm. I know a couple of men that are really into watches. Well, I wanted to ask you this, too, though. Speaking of cars and watches, I was in Palm Beach visiting my folks. And I was walking down the street, and I saw this white car, and I was like, holy smokes, this is a really incredible car. So I took a picture of it because a friend of mine is really into cars. And I discovered that it was a Bugatti. Mm. It was an amazing car. I'll show you guys a picture. And my friend said um, something like that it was seven figures. And I was like, holy smokes, I knew a Bugatti was a nice car, but I didn't realize that it was like the car. So I guess my question is, you know, I went down this whole road of Bugattis. What is the Bugatti of the watch world? Or well, like what uh, would be like a white whale watch? So probably like a very high complication that Patek Philippe would make. You know, okay, they make really? mil- million dollar watches. So yeah. a lot of these companies 
make very specialized products in small quantity that the, the majority of the public really never sees and is not aware of. But not a Panerai, like you think of Patek Philippe because it's more elegant? Clearly a Patek okay. Philippe, but not a Panerai. But. <laughs> he doesn't sell Panerais. <laughs> okay. But are you talking Booker? No, no, is that no, really nothing like offensive the real to Panerai. The president right. is a personal friend. You know? <laughs> okay. But Patek Philippe, really, like that would probably it's, it's be the, it's the, the, it's the Bugatti of high watch watchmaking. Okay. Yeah. And Rolex makes beautiful sport watches, right. but they generally don't make high complications that, that reach well into the many six figures and seven figures right. um, and higher. So um, that's kind of what I would describe as like the equivalent of the supercar. And you also do Cartier. We do. We do. So Cartier is a fantastic watch, but really it's more bejeweled. It's not a t- as much of a timepiece. No, I, would, I wouldn't say so. I mean, Cartier has an amazing high watchmaking facility that people don't talk about quite as much. Uh, as Cartier probably deserves. I have so Cartier, Cartier makes some very love. highly complicated watches, oh, okay. old mystery watches. What's an old mystery watch? It's just a style of watch where the kind of part of the movement is hidden from view. It's kind oh, of clean and modern. That's called old mystery? To, well, they used to make mystery clocks and mystery watches. And Cartier makes beautiful, beautiful, beautiful products yeah. today. Um, you know, many of them are... You know, accessible at you know very reasonable yes. price points. I just got this is rather lovely. Well, right you know, <laughs> my family's my family's history is the antique and estate jewelry business, right. so that's really my frame of reference for Cartier, which is one of the great jewelry yeah. houses in the world. Right, and I think that's the reason why the watches don't always get as much credit as they deserve because we think of Cartier as one of the finest jewelry houses in the world. Mm-hmm. Good point. Although a tank watch, like a Cartier tank, that's what I'm referencing. Oh. I've had a Cartier tank. I um, sold the first uh, diamond engagement ring that I ever had <laughs> so, <laughs> and I mean, bought a Cartier tank. And this was a long time ago, and it's still running. You know, when I think of, like, the, the height of elegance, you. you know, with watches, I think of a Cartier tank watch. I yeah. think of Jackie O wearing her, right. you know, Cartier tank that actually went up for sale right. uh, relatively oh, recently. It did? it did at Christie's. And I, I thought I might be interested in <gasps> buying one because, you know, President Kennedy's uh, funeral was at St. Matthew's Cathedral right by the store. And I right. thought it'd be great to have it. And I kind of placed a, a, a bid in there and I didn't monitor it. And I woke up in the morning and found out that it had been sold to Kim Kardashian. Oh, you're uh, kidding. For about 20 times what I was willing to pay <laughs> for it. Fascinating, though. I was like, oh, Kim Kardashian got Jackie O's watch. <laughs> oh, that is so interesting just in and of itself. Yeah, I won't comment on uh, on that. <laughs> other than to say that I was just disappointed that Tiny Jewel well. Box was yeah. not the winning bidder. You're listening to Lunch with Shelley. You talked a lot about you know just you know luxury, and I, and I find that you know when when you talk about luxury, those who consume it, uh, I, it's not just what they're getting, but the experience, I guess, of getting it. Yes. And so you're also, I guess, kind of in the experience business when people come in. Like what's the what's the what's the experience when they walk through the doors? Oh my god, the, yeah. the people are so lovely. But you answer. Well, I th- <laughs> then how I think, do you facilitate that experience? I think that really the the key element is the quality of the people yeah. uh, at the store and their authenticity. And you know, when I think of luxury experiences, I think of how you feel 
right? And a lot, not everyone shops in stores very often, but a lot of people, most people travel or affluent people travel. So I kind of liken it to you've been on a long flight and you've been in your, got your luggage, you get in your car and you land at, you know, a lovely hotel and you get that warm greeting and a little glass of water and maybe a little towel to wipe your hand. It's that ah yeah. moment, yeah, right? That's what we want is people to come in and have this soft landing and to kind of decompress and to kind of engage us in talking about, you know, what we do and beautiful things and craftsmanship and stones and to be able to sit down and share a coffee or a water or a glass of bubbly yeah, uh, and to sit and really interact with each other. It becomes, you know, very relational um, and experiential, hopefully. I, I think that you achieve all of those things. I mean, when you walk in, there's a greeter. And uh, he's still like he's still a little wary of me. I mean, he's he's yeah. nice, but he's not terrifically emotive. But you know, I say hi to him. Actually, that's not true. It took him. It took me a while, but now I'm on his good side. <laughs> but like, there's a greeter there, and um, the uh, countertops are sparkling, and everybody's lovely—the new people and the old people. And I mean, I definitely get a high Shelly whenever I walk in, and I know exactly where I'm going, but. The watch guys have been there forever. Travis has been there forever. John has been there forever. Anne has been there forever. You know, I mean, I could go on and on, but it's just lovely. So it's I just was... a lovely experience. And and it's it's beautiful. It's clean. It's impeccable. There is water. It's, you know, all those things that I said. Yeah, you know, there's a lot of chatter in the retail business today about newfangled strategies, whether it's omnichannel, experiential And I kind of think that the old school things of personal service and authentic connection are kind of not talked about too much. But I think that those are the old school things that make a difference today still. You know, it's funny because Claude and I uh, take great pride in authentic conversations. Right. And we've been talking about this for how long? Well, a while. Mm -hmm. But I think... That authentic is on the verge of being overused, which is a shame only because I think the import of authenticity is so big. But I think people are talking about it a lot, so much so that it's making it inauthentic. Mm. I mean, <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, people are trying to... Like, Everyone's the way you're authentic, authentic is just to be yourself. Right. And, and, but now there's this manipulation and an effort to say, well, I'm authentic and it's manufactured authenticity mm-hmm. and that exactly. makes it, yeah but you can't manufacture it it's not exactly you can't manufacture in an effort it. to try to be yeah. right yeah i think the hardest chord to really strike in any luxury business is creating the luxury experience without the pretension yes yeah, and right. i think that's mm-hmm. what makes people feel warm and comfortable and able to kind of relax and conduct themselves in a, in, in an authentic way comfortably right it's it's just um yeah, it, it's not rocket science, but it's the quality of the people. It, it is rocket science because everybody would be doing it. And you have to eat, Matt, by the way. You are listening to Lunch with Shelly. You know, it's an interesting question, Claude, about, you know, what drives something that you love. Right. And I find in my business that sometimes people feel the need to ascribe a rational basis why they like or don't like something. Mm-hmm. And what I say to them... I said, it, it's not rational, right? If you go to a museum and you respond to a piece of art, you don't know why. Right. It just evokes something and is emotional. And I think a great stone or a great piece of jewelry should evoke something. Mm. And mm. That's, that's emotional, not rational. Yeah. And I don't think you need to know why 
mm-hmm. right? Like, you know, I don't need to know why I love that painting hanging in a museum. Right. It just does something to me. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's so interesting, though, because Claude and I had this very cool girl on Woman, and we were talking about art. And, she, you know, she said the same thing about art, which is true about jewelry, is that you like what you like. But I think there's so much pretension also um, adjacent to what you like because you feel stupid if really you like the dogs playing poker. I mean, even if that's really what you like, you know, you sort of keep it to yourself. Well, that's why really you, uh, you should come like to Tiny Jewel Box and we edit for you, Shelly. There's no dogs playing poker for sale, okay? But that's such a great point, though, no, because you know like, I mean? if, you're, when you, if you really like what you like, you get a little nervous in the art world rather, yeah. I think. Well, I mean, and, and so I'm a huge sports fan. I love golf. And so mm. I try to, so I, some things make sense to me when I use a sports analogy. So I think about it like like uh, with golf. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's really into golf course architecture, and I'm like, mm. you know, as someone who just goes out and plays, and I like the courses that I like. Like, but what what makes a great golf course from an architecture standpoint? He's like, just forget all of that. When you go, do you like the way you have to play the course? Do you like the scenery? Do you like the the strategy you've got to use to try to get around? You know. Under at least twenty over, like like what like what like you know, and so what do you like when you're there? What do you see and what do you feel? Who cares what the experts say? Oh, this you know Fazio designed this and that. Right. Notice how you right. know Pete Dye put the like. You know, who cares about that? Like, what do you feel when you're playing the course? What do you see and 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 critique it based on what what you feel, even if you can't necessarily explain it. And right. it seems like it's the same thing with art or with jury. You know, you yes. if it brings something out of you, who cares what? "Quote unquote experts say, yes. what do you say about the piece? You're the one wearing it. You're the one buying right. it. You're the I'm, one experiencing it. I, I love the sports analogy to jewelry because I'm, in, in addition to being a big jewelry fan, I'm also a big sports fan. So I do know what. What are your sports? Oh, I'm you know hockey, basketball, oh, really? baseball, football. You know all Washington teams. Right. You know played everything uh, uh, as a kid, uh, not at any uh, high competitive level, but was able to enjoy everything of course. Uh, as a kid. So I'm a, I'm a D.C. native. I'm a local, local, homo, homo. There okay. you go. Absolutely. <laughs> to me, it's one of the best times of year at the store right now. Oh, right. Because it's, it's the beginning Mother's of our Day. annual sale. The one <laughs> sale starts today. So uh, that's a great time of year where a lot of people know that we only run one sale per year. They come in at this time of year. Thank Mother's you. Day is on the near horizon. And um, it's a very busy time of year. In the well, store. Mother's Day is an enormously important time of year, as I think all of us at this table. Will oh goodness! Yeah. <laughs> but Cle- clearly, like- <laughs> I would say that Mother's Day trumps Father's Day. Oh yes. my God! They're, they are not on a, uh, a parallel plane no, uh, no, no. in my world. At no, least. <laughs> in nobody's world. But you know, actually, you're making an important distinction because it is not the Mother's Day sale; it's the one time a year sale. But then there's also the Mother's Day sale. But again, I do say I miss the stuff stuff. Because um, I used to, oh, my God, make a killing. I had a whole gift, not closet, but, no, I used to walk out. And also, they have the most gorgeous packaging, as I've uh, mentioned. Mm-hmm. But I, everything was, like, 50 off, 50 to 80% off. They would have different colored stickers. Right. I guess you right. still do that, yeah. I, I, I'm I so glad that. you enjoyed that, Shelley. Uh, it may not have been, been the best business practice on our part. Oh, my but. God, it was amazing. I had shot glasses and leather journals and mm-hmm. scarves and 
couplings, I mean, you know, and I mean that oh was such an interesting time in our in our history. And uh, again, I think the store is a wonderful, interesting place to shop at that time. It was, and, you know, we, but the, the tough part was we just couldn't make it work. I know, you know, on a business level. And I think that's you know part of the reason why we're still around after I know, all these years, you have and to why pivot. a lot of competitors you know are not is because we're open minded to change, and that started with my father. So we don't have that typical dynamic, you know, of the the next generation taking over and being held back by the older generation. I came up in a family that embraced change and yeah. knew that you had to, you know, not let change kind of run over you and change with the times. Hence the the. The, the big development of our watch business uh, as opposed to our uh, gift business and that will be what sustains us and keeps us here you know for the future so, I'm uh, smiling I frowning I, I know I do agree with you. I miss the I gifts too I used to come out with, I mean like with bags this big oh my gosh my <laughs> wife is the gifts too She's I love the gifts well actually we still have some though we still have I, some Okay, I have to come by, clearly. But um, do you think that your kids or which kid will take over? Uh, I'll, I'll speak freely, knowing my kids are not listening to this <laughs> in the moment. But, um, you know, both of my kids actually express interest in coming into business. I'm I have a son so who's uh, 23 and a, and a daughter who's 21. And I think they both, you know, have developed emotional connections to the business. And I think the type of business that we have... It's kind of easy to do that, right? Because it's very tangible. Yeah, because they can hang around. Yeah. Like they've grown they, up in the store. They come and right. visit. Right, know? right. You know, my wife told me that uh, when her, her father was a management consultant, when kids would ask what, what he did for a living, she would answer by saying, uh, he highlights things, <laughs> you know? So you don't really know kind of as a kid, you know, some jobs. But when you have a store, it's very tangible. So I think it's easier like get an emotional attachment. I know that's right. what happened with me. Um, so we'll see. You know, I, I don't want them to work in the company now. Uh, it's definitely not time for dad to be their boss. <laughs> they need to grow on their own uh, and on their own path for a little bit. But I think there's a reasonable likelihood that, uh, you know, one or, one or both of them will, you know, come around and be selling you something in the future, oh Shelly. Oh, my God. I was you know, going to say, you have to four connect Four generations, <laughs> Shelly, from my grandparents to my kids. It's so, I think that'd be pretty cool. It's so spectacular. It's just so special. I mean, it makes me teary. I'm, well, there's not I'm too so much of unbelievably envious about it because it's... It's incredible, don't you think? You know, there's, there's not too many industries where family businesses yeah. can still thrive. Four generations we're, would we're be one of those industries, and um, I, I think it's really different and, and really fun. And we're very fortunate, even though if we're like dinosaurs a little bit. You know? No, not at all. I mean, clearly, everything that you're saying is exactly the opposite of being a dinosaur. So, <laughs> I didn't realize. That you went to Syracuse, which is interesting from a Grateful Dead standpoint. But for your history, you went to Syracuse and then Gem School and then right to Tiny Jewel Box? Or was there something in between? I did. Uh, it wasn't the plan. I was going to go work in New York for a diamond company oh, at really? a gemological school. My father had been trying to purchase the Elizabeth Arden building, and it had kind of fallen apart. And the owner came back kind of last minute. And said, look, we'll, we'll do the deal with you if you can close very quickly. So I was in this position where, you know, do I want to go to New York and work in kind of a low-level, kind of entry-level job and miss this kind of, like, huge evolution in the company or come back and really be a part of this, you know, going from 1,500 to 12,000 square feet kind of um, 
maturation of the company, so I chose to come back to Washington oh, good. circumstantially. Not necessarily that I, because I, I thought it would be, you know, the best thing for my own growth path. But it was circumstantial. You were a saint of circumstance, <laughs> which is a Grateful Dead song. Um, that was very well done, Shelley. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll be dancing in the streets later. So anyway, yeah, this uh, just established a scholarship to help kind of move young to promote watchmaking as a career path for young people. And, you know, for instance, a young watchmaker out of high school can go to watchmaking school. Many of them are tuition-free that are attached to the brands come out of school with a two-year degree in watchmaking and walk into a probably $60,000 to $80,000 job, tuition-free, which is very attractive for a lot of people. So our industry needs probably 4,000 watchmakers that we don't have. And we actually got a lovely piece of press on NBC National uh, about this, and it's kind of helping move the needle. So we've been getting some interesting traction around this scholarship that we established, and it's just a feel-good thing and a good giving back thing to do yeah. um, that's kind of um, really taken hold and uh, taken on a life that I didn't necessarily anticipate. So, um, yeah, I'm excited about that. Thank you. I never even knew that that was an option or a consideration. Right. These watches, you know... Uh, I want Manny to be everything. Yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to get Manny to get the scholarship and become a watchmaker. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me more about your wife. How did you guys meet? So you came to D.C. My, rather than going after the gem school. Yes, my wife and I met um, while I was at the end of my college career. And oh, we okay. met camping uh, randomly, not together, in the mountains of Vermont. I met her, was enthralled with her, and then actually wrote her letters, letters. And then um, she was going to college a couple hours away uh, from Syracuse. She started at GW and then finished at SUNY Potsdam. Okay. And uh, I drove up uh, and found her without her address and just tracked her down with guerrilla marketing tactics and found her and... Um, you know, to bring it full circle like on our so Grateful like Dead story. Yeah. So I went up and found her an apartment. I had been planning to go sit to see six Grateful Dead shows in a row at Madison Square Garden. She was starting school and said she couldn't come. And at the <laughs> moment I was leaving, she tossed the school away, got her bag, jumped in my car, and we went on the road to the Grateful Dead together <laughs> for six shows in Madison Square Garden. Wow. She blew off the beginning of her year of college, and that was that. So you go to campus and you're like, does anybody know uh, where Beth lives? We're like where the hippies lived, right? You know, it's like she was a hippie kid. So was she I was in like, a sorority was a, or something? No. She okay. was, uh, I literally uh, just tracked down a bunch of hippies, described my wife, <laughs> gave her her name. And, and exactly eventually in about, about, literally in about an hour and 20 minutes, I was able to like track her down and find her and be like, show up at her house and just did it. Right. And, oh my it was, God. You know, listen. That People is the greatest story. That's the greatest story phone, ever. You know, yeah. pre, pre right, technology. Right. Well, know, that's what I'm envisioning. That's what you had to do. You had to get down and dirty and right. make things happen. Have a pen you know? and a piece of paper. Right. right. And a stamp. Oh my God. <laughs> I still have stamps. Nice. Well, Matt, you are a fantastic guest. You are so interesting as I knew you would be and as fun as I knew you would be. So thank you so much for being on. 
This is it's my pleasure, Shelly, and this is so much fun. It's always fun getting to spend time with you, but uh, being able to be a part of your podcast is special. And uh, what what a fun experience! Thank you so much for thank having you. me. Well, thank you so much. We'll have you on again. Claude and I have had the best time. We love mm-hmm. the Palm, so thank you to everybody at the Palm. Please download this episode uh, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And in the meantime, peace, love, and lunch. <laughs>